0: This is Climate Champions, a podcast about people from small island-developing states who are fighting to protect their communities from the impacts of climate change. It's part of DEVEX's Turning the Tide series, which you can visit at turningthetide.devex.com. Today, we're looking at the North Pacific nation of Palau. It's an archipelago of more than 200 islands and is home to around 18,000 people a former U.S. territory, Palau gained its independence in 1994. 25% of its landmass lies below 10 meters above sea level, while warming waters threaten coral reefs and fish stocks, which are already depleted by overfishing. Although our guest on today's show hails from this island, she's actually worked in and traveled to many small island nations around the world in her role as a diplomat. Ambassador Olay Uladong currently serves as permanent representative of Palau to the United Nations in New York. The daughter of parents who were political activists in Palau's independence movement, she told me it was this passion for helping the country find its course in the world that inspired her to enter a life of public service. She's worked on climate change issues throughout her career, and prior to her current post, was Palau's ambassador to the EU and Belgium. From 2012 to 2014, she represented over 40 nations that form the Alliance of Small Island States in negotiations in the lead up to the landmark Paris Agreement. I started off by asking her what she learned from this experience.
1: I learned a lot, I must say, I I learned that uh, just because you're from a small island doesn't mean you can't change the world. And and that was a great learning lesson for me is that, you know, I had to find earlier on that passion. And then that passion really helped in the negotiations because there were times where you ask yourself, can I really from, you know, a country that has a population of 20,000 and now we're presenting 43 uh, small island states in the world in leading this group of small islands. Can you really make a difference? And then you realize that alone you can't do it, but collectively you can. And collectively realizing that islands have to have a voice in the climate change agenda and what you do on you know, in the industrialized nation is affecting not just our livelihood, but our identity and our culture. And I learned that as a woman, it was even harder for me. I had to work twice as hard as a woman in a man's political arena. It was hard enough, you know, to be a small island and trying to to be the mosquito in the room. And it was equally hard enough being a woman from the islands of the Pacific, which, if you notice, culturally still, we, in the Pacific, most of the political systems still don't have a lot of women. But having to find that strength and bring it to the table to say the IPCC and science has shown that greenhouse gas emissions has to stay well below... 1.5 1.5 degrees, because if it doesn't and you alter the system, it's not just the environment that changed but you have your culture, tradition, and identity can be lost. And what happens if countries like Tuvalu, Marshall Islands, and Kiribati, and Vanuatu, who are considered most vulnerable in the world, once you lose that sovereignty how is the global community going to address that it's still a big question now and we're still fighting for it for it you know the climate change as a security issue
0: and could you talk about some of the main ways that palau is um, adapting or taking measures to protect communities from the impacts of climate change
1: so palau's in ways that is adapting to climate change has taken on a very strong environmental stance, uh, not just on climate change but the environment as a whole. So the country itself uh, uh, started focusing on the environment and the impacts uh, uh, of the environment, to natural or human, and then started and started a really good campaign on educating um, the citizens on what climate change is and what measures needs to be taken place. Um, when you have El Niño and La Niña events, it also drives vector-borne diseases, um, like from from dengue. So a lot of our adaptation measures was uh, focused on a clean environment. So we have some of the strongest environmental legislations in the world and that are in place now.
0: I wondered if you could just talk a bit about some of the sort of traditional ocean conservation practices that exist in Palau and how that works with environmental regulations and policies in Palau?
1: The president uh, has always had this, uh, you know, the environment, you look at it, that it's the mother goose that, that lays the golden egg. And so our environment, he has this motto, our environment is our economy and our economy is on our environment. And that probably stems a lot to do with our traditional uh, culture, because in Palau, we have one of the oldest uh, marine protected areas in the world, way before we became independent and way before we put things in paper. So we we have uh, one of the oldest concept of uh, marine protected areas, which we call bull traditionally we had traditional villages and each of the village had a traditional chiefs and the traditional chiefs would look after their clans and also their communities and villages. So we had a strong sense of when it comes to the Marine, the Marine is your life, the ocean is your life. That's what, that's what defines you as a Palawan. And therefore, if you're gonna go fish um, for your family and your clan, that you have to ensure that, that this is the, the golden opportunity to make sure that that is safeguarded so you would take what you can and nothing more. And that was the wisdom of our forefathers, is that this traditional bull, which is a moratorium on certain portions when, when you live off it and you overexploit a certain area, then you must ensure that that area that you've you've taken from has the ability to breathe. So then you put a moratorium on that area and you move to another place and then you would live that area to regenerate itself. So it stemmed from that and then throughout the years, um, because of of the the passion of our our president and, and his administration, that that became the center stage of his portfolio and platform is is Palau can't sustainably thrive without ensuring that the ocean is at the heart of its environmental agenda and political agenda. And that is essentially the defining force of what makes us unique is valuing the tradition and the culture of your of the environment and the people that live in it and thrive with it and then as we we modernized ourselves and adapted to globalization that we realize that our greatest asset is the environment
0: that's that's really interesting and how important has it been to put that sense of cultural identity sort of at the centre of specific the legislations and policies in Palau?
1: We started the Protected Areas Network domestically to protect uh, 30% of our marine and 20% of our terrestrial resources. And then knowing that we're a tourism-dependent uh, country, that we ensured that we had a legislation in place and reformed our tourism agenda to Pristine Paradise Palau brand. For every tourist that comes to Palau, you pay a Pristine Paradise environmental impact fee. That portion of the fee goes to maintaining the protected areas and the environment surrounding Palau and its 16 states. So we have a really strong protected areas network and a strong environmental and green fee that ensures that it goes hand in hand with environmental management and maintaining a tourism industry. Then in 2014, the president launched uh, the call for uh, uh, designating 80% over exclusive economic zone to become a no-take uh, zone from commercial fishing industry, basically, if you look at it uh, in 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 by imagination, you could imagine looking at the size of France. So we designated eighty percent of our our waters to become the bigger version of what I told you before on the ball, the moratorium, the traditionally protected area.
0: Given that we are still in the midst of a global pandemic at the moment. I know that Palau as yet has not had any cases of COVID-19, but I just wondered, do you see any kind of connection between this pandemic that we're in and the climate change response? I don't know if there's any kind of lessons learned or any reflections that you have on that.
1: You know, the two crises have some similarities, um, but, but also quite important in the differences. For example, climate change, uh, the systematic changes are ones that we need to sustain for years, for decades. For, for COVID-19, a big part of the response is about how to get back to that normal or new normal, the no lockdown, for industries to resume and so on. Um, but for climate change, what do you consider normal is our fossil fuel powered world that is leading these these climate change impacts that we are seeing and, we, and which will continue to in, intensify. So we need to get far away as possible from the normal of the past century if you look at climate change. But for the COVID response, It tells us that some of the constraints of resources that have often been cited for delaying climate action are really constraints of the imagination. And that may be the lesson to take away about what kind of politics are possible i mean in palau we've been fortunate that our partners uh, have have really shown some solidarity uh, in this global pandemic in helping us access coronavirus testing facilities on island without this we wouldn't be able to test you know all all with the flights suspended. And, you know, we have strong partners, again, similar to to what we face in climate change. We have strong partners from Taiwan, uh, the United States, Australia, even India as a developing country, which is facing a huge domestic challenges, providing us with invaluable assistance. Uh, you know, Vietnam uh, as well is, is assisting us. You know, you have Israel and you have other countries. And so this is the same kind of solidarity that we really need for climate change for all other development challenges we face rather than retreat into the me first isolation. So there, there are um, similarities and there are differences, but there are a lot of lessons to be learned.
0: Great. Um, and do you have any final message or call to action for the global community or anything else that you wanted to talk about that we haven't covered?
1: So for, for Palau, we were, set, we were set to host our ocean conference uh, in August, uh, becoming the first small island nation to ever do so. However, because of the COVID-19, we're now going to host the conference uh, in December. The hosting this conference allows us to emphasize two important aspects. And that's really bringing a greater attention to the context, needs, and circumstances of the small island states, especially in the Pacific. Or rather, we like to call ourselves large ocean states. And how we can partner in responding to the global crisis of the health of our ocean and what it's in. And island states often have large exclusive economic zones. And we need to develop partnerships in order to build our capacities to manage these uh, effectively, and of course, over you know avoiding overexploitation. And the other, you know, secondly, the one thing I wanted to to also highlight uh, uh, is and emphasize the need for credible and, and quality commitments on ocean action, just as exactly the same as climate action. After the COVID nineteen pandemic you're gonna see a lot of the countries have to have a green recovery and a blue recovery system in place. And we would like to ensure that that coming out of this COVID-19 that the blue recovery is, is ever more in the sustainable development agenda. And I mean, it's a big undertaking, but I think it's important uh, that uh, We had a climate crisis, now we have a COVID 19 pandemic, but not to lose sight on ensuring that the ocean degradation does not fall heaviest to those least responsible as well.
0: I loved that final message uh, from Ambassador Uludong about the importance of thinking about how, as we begin to look beyond the pandemic, How do we ensure that we are building back better through a green or blue recovery rather than just reverting to business as usual? And I think this is obviously something that is on a lot of people's minds at the moment. And really, as I was re-listening to this interview, I thought, could this be another moment like with the Paris Agreement where the world does look to the wisdom of smaller countries or, should we say, large ocean states like Palau to think about how to plan this more environmentally friendly recovery? The other thing that I found really interesting from what she spoke about was um, this this marine protected area that Palau has managed to create which is 80% of its ocean territory um, and it's really it's amazing and also so interesting that it's basically an extension of this traditional concept of bull, this moratorium on uh, fishing and using other resources during certain times of the year and in certain areas that dates back for thousands of years. The other message that I thought was really strong and maybe something that other activists or people from island countries could could, uh, could learn from Ambassador uludong was around maintaining this strong sense of identity and um, this sense of environmental or value for the environment and that this can be one of the greatest assets and strengths of a nation like Palau and that this can really contribute so much to facing complex global problems like climate change. So, if you enjoyed today's episode you might want to check out the others we've produced as part of this series and you can listen to them all by visiting turningthetide.devx.com and you can also find them on spotify and itunes we'll be back again soon for another interview with a climate champion from another large ocean state see you next time thanks for listening